This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. On today's show, we're going to look back at the Estoril, Estoril World Superbikes round. Steve English, Gordon Ritchie on the podcast as normal. And we're joined by a special guest this week. We've got Charlie Hiscott from Eurosport on the call as well. And Charlie, you're pretty much the busiest man in the world as far as me and Gordo can understand. You do the full Superbike season and pretty much, what, two-thirds of the MotoGP season. You were lucky enough to skip Le Mans. I know that David Emmett... He, he skipped it as well. No one seems to like going to Le Mans. I actually always quite liked it just because of the history and the venue and all that. But for some reason, you know, you were happy enough to have a week off, holiday in the south of France, and then come to Portugal instead. There was no luck involved in that, Steve-O. That's experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, Charlie, it's good to have you on the show. I know that um, you're... you're you're actually a supporter of the Paddock Pass podcast. We have to give a thank you to, to you for uh, supporting us for our Patreon shows during the MotoGP race weekend. So I, I'm not really sure why we're not going to pay you for this, Charlie. We might give you a month's free subscription to Patreon. <laughs> but, uh, it's you know, just the same as it's, buying it's a my push. way onto the show, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be honest. Like we, we have said to people in the past, if you donate enough money, chances are we'll actually put you on the show. So, uh, Charlie, you're the living proof of that. If it's good enough for the government, it's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> just just one thing for you Charlie before we get started you're obviously known as the the hard-hitting journalist of world superbikes and I always thought that was a little bit of an unfair reputation for you you ask the tough questions when they need to be asked but by and large you're always looking to do what's right for the championship you're positive about the series you've been working in world superbikes for what the best part of 20 years yeah so you want to see the championship do well and I always like the perspective that we get from having you on the grid or you down in Park Verma. It's different to what me and Gordo get. We get the riders after they've calmed down. You get their immediate response. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of true. But at the same time, um, you know, it's quite hard to get anything out of that because generally on the grid, I mean, you know what it's like. The riders are all, they're so focused. It's not really a place where I had to learn in the early days, basically, that you have to ask appropriate questions on the grid. You can't, you know... So it's it's a really nice place to be, and I'm, I feel really lucky and privileged that I do get to go on the grid and speak to the riders. You know, I don't have someone telling me who I have to speak to. I can make up my own decisions, but generally, it's um, it's quite a tricky thing. And also with World Superbikes that you don't get in GPs, I do three or four grids in a weekend. So sometimes you find it's quite the the the, uh, the tricky part of it is you know when you've spoken to a rider like Jonathan Ray, for example, and you've done him in. Park for you know you've interviewed him before quali then you've interviewed him in Park Ferme after quali then you do him on the grid for the first race and you do him in Park Ferme after the first race and you do him you know on the grid before so actually you can end up splitting it's like sometimes the skill of my job is trying to think of something else to ask them do you know what I mean and it can be sometimes and then you throw in a red flag and sometimes you're just like oh my god okay there's 30 riders on this grid but <laughs> it can be quite hard yeah, I always think as well, because I remember whenever I had to do the Superbike grids for Dorna as well, it used to be me and you down on the grids doing yeah. our interviews. And after the first couple of rounds, the two of us just stopped getting pissed off with each other for trying to get the same rider at the same time, that I would start off at the back of the fourth row, you'd start off at the front, and then we'd get halfway down, we'd meet each other in and around sixth or seventh spot, and then you're kind of like, okay, well, you know, you can take P6, Charlie, I'll move on to P5. Yeah. and. It's funny, actually, how the dynamics work on the grid for everything. And you actually saw it at the weekend as well, where service were talking to a rider, you wanted to talk to us, so you have to react on the fly. And uh, I, I have to say, I after the end of a weekend, I usually go back and watch what was said on the grid as well. And I thought this weekend, 
it was really good. It was really telling because you talked to Jonathan after at the start of race one and he said, you know what, Charlie, I wish it was a lot colder or a lot hotter because I've got a tough tyre decision to make and we're right on the limit. And it turned out that's exactly how the race transpired, Gordo, because we saw that Jonathan went with a harder tyre and he needed the softer tyre. And it's whenever you get that little bit of insight on the grid, it makes a big difference. Yeah, it does. And I think the problem for them was that they expected it to stay more stable in the temperature and it actually increased. So that took them away from where they thought it would be. They thought they'd planned for the temperature that started to be more or less the same and it just got a bit too high. So that is what they say determined the race. Um, and that's the kind of margins we're working at now with those top three guys. If they make one slight error or, and or the conditions change, that set up stops them uh, being the winner or, or contributes to it. Um, and these are the kind of margins we're playing with now in World Superbike, especially in that really hard top three, you know, because they're just... Look at Ruben Rinaldi, obviously, he went on the wrong tyre in, in that first yeah, race no and was, you know, was 10th. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think he made a great choice in the second race. So it does go to show that actually someone who, who we know can fight at the front makes a critical tyre decision and, you know, he ends up in 10th place. Shows how close it is as well. Yeah, because obviously with Rinaldi, we saw it was a wet race or a drying track for race two. He goes with the intermediate front and it ended up biting them. And I think this was, like you said, Charlie, where we saw the knife edge that World Superbikes is in right now. And we actually, we were planning on having David on the show, but it turns out the MotoGP show was being recorded pretty much right now as well. So we, we ended up, Charlie was our substitute because we wanted someone that had the perspective of uh, you said I was special. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean we, we took Charlie's money, so All we had to get back. him on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we, we took you on this show particularly, Charlie, because we're at that stage of the season now where we've had three rounds, Bautista, Ray, Razgidioglu. We know that they're effectively the podium contenders more often than not. That's the way the season's going to transpire. But we also have it now where Toprak's obviously got his test coming up on the MotoGP bike in two weeks' time. It's before we go to Misano. So by the time we go to Misano, the narrative around Toprak's going to change. He'll be able to tell us, you know what, I can ride this bike. You know what, maybe I don't want to ride this bike. And I think that's one of the things that's going to be interesting going forward because this weekend we saw it again where, yeah, we've the, the three riders that we expect to be at the front, three riders that won all three races, they were on the podium in all the races as well. But we saw racing unlike we see anywhere else. All three races were separated by a, a tenth of a second at the line. You know, like that's what you get at Phillip Island and Mugello and a couple of places in MotoGP. You don't get it week in, week out, never mind three races at the same track. And I think it's where we're, we're getting to the point now where Top Rack is obviously going to be in the discussion for MotoGP next year. Charlie, you're in that paddock. You hear what people are saying about him. You're obviously very much in the world superbike paddock, so you know how good he is. Top Rack needs to get a chance, but he's also a rider that you could understand if he says, nah, I'm happy in superbikes. 12, 13 rounds, getting paid good money, winning races, winning world championships. It's pretty good. It's a really interesting discussion, and also I think that the um, the narrative may have already changed without without Top Rack having anything to do with it. Because obviously, when this um, came to light, which was sort of towards the second third of last year, and Top Rack was you know involved in a championship battle and riding you know fantastically, um, I, I I I mean this is purely my own opinion, but I do wonder whether you know when Yamaha go to Top Rack or to Keenan effectively and say you know. Well, you know, potentially there could be a factory ride here for Top Rack. And when they don't bite Yamaha's arm off for it, instead they come back with some demand saying, well, we're going to win this championship first and then we only want a factory ride. I wonder whether, firstly, that slightly 
um, slightly put a slight negativity, a negative effect on that discussion. Then you scroll forward to this year and top ranked not in a position that he was at the end of last year as world champion. He's now on the back foot. He's 50, you know, 50 odd points down, 52 points down. And things are looking completely different for him. So now I think the factory ride might, well, I don't know, but it looks like I think the factory ride might definitely be out of the question, depending on what happens in MotoGP. Um, but also I think, it, you know, if you're going to be offered that ride, not only Ben Spees has, has been offered, you know, a similar sort of thing, um, you know, like a golden ticket into MotoGP. And I think that you have to be, if Yamaha don't think that Top Rack wants it enough, which he, which is up for debate because he's so happy here, I think the narrative has changed. And I think that he'll go and ride the bike. Um, you know, when I spoke to Eric Sign uh, right at the beginning of the season, he said, you know, we're going to give Top Rack a really good test. You know, we're going to really give him an opportunity to shine on this bike. And then it's now looking like it's just a one-day test. Um, Cal's going to be out on the bike with him, you know, which is a good shout, you know, a good shake of the stick for him. He can see, uh, you know, we can, we'll, we'll get an idea of how he goes on. But, you know, a one-day test, you know, if it's raining or something like that, that has potential for him to not, you know, be able to see, for us not to be able to see how well he goes on that bike. And I just wonder whether that golden ticket is now a silver ticket and it could fairly soon be a bronze ticket, if you know what I mean. I think for, for us, Gordo, obviously, we've known Top Rack a long time. You're in the paddock right from when Top Rack came onto a stock 600 bike. I obviously came in in 2016. And over the course of the last five years, say, Top Rack's become a much more open person. He, he's, his English is so much better now, so he's got a lot more confidence. And when he says, I'll only go if it's the right thing for me, it actually, you believe it. Whereas I think if other riders said it, you'd kind of be there like, no, no, you're going to go to MotoGP because it's a chance to go to MotoGP. Top Rack's a very unusual character. So he's probably the only rider I can think of that will actually make his own decision based on what he thinks is right. And it might be something that's completely different to the values someone else would have for making the decision. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely a very different person. He comes from a different culture, a different mindset. Um He's he's a he's the most laid back guy you can imagine to be a racer. Even he never gets excited, even when something really dramatic's going on. Um, and he does think his own way. Um, he was basically told by Keenan to go on a superbike and not make the move into super sport. Uh, sorry, super stock, and then to get experience on the big bike and then go superbike. Um, and I think genuinely what everybody said about it is right. He's, if he doesn't want to go, he won't go. And I agree with Charlie's point that it would have been a lot easier to get something signed at the end of last year. Everything now hinges on that test. And if he doesn't get a decent test and show what he can really do, then and if he doesn't do well in that test, I think Charlie's we won't even be at the bronze stage, you know, because there's so many people come through from MotoGP. They've got their, they've always went their own way, and it's always been difficult for superbike riders to go there. And get a, you know, with the odd exception, to get a really good bike, and it's kind of been a career graveyard for a lot of uh, superbike guys going there. So I totally understand that he wants it to be correct, but yeah, if you two parties can't agree, yeah, you know, it's not going to happen. Now, for me, the other thing that makes Top Rack very odd is the influence of Keenan Sofwaglu, and you, like Gordé, you said that you know. Um, Top Rack went from Superstock to Superbike. Now, I remember Keenan telling me that he was telling Top Rack to go straight to Superbike because Keenan didn't want to race against him in Supersport. And you've now got an, a, an incredibly strong influence in Keenan who has become incredibly successful, reputedly the rich, richest man in the world Superbike paddock, having never done any world Superbikes. So it's not a normal case of a rider doing really well and aiming for the top. 
you've got a very, very strong influence there that's saying that actually you have to think about where the top is and how the top is going to affect you for the rest of your life, which is where, you know, Keenan is saying to top rank, you can't do anything until you won the world supermarket because I can't get you rich in Turkey without being a world champion. So it's a very, it's a very tricky thing to understand. He's not like a normal, like a normal English rider that we would understand the dynamics and where they come from. He's a Turkish guy with an incredibly strong influence from a rider who's become exceptionally wealthy without reaching the top. Uh, yeah, um, I understand what you say when you when you say that. I, I mean, obviously, Top Rack did go for a year on a super bike and it really didn't work out very well. Um, he also went to Moto Two and it didn't work out very well. But I, I would, un, I think now, at the end of the day, I think Top Rack totally understands uh, how good he is. I know Keenan does, um, and I think the decision now would ultimately be at this stage, the final decision is going to be if there is a decision to be able to be made. Um, if everything falls into place, it won't actually be Kenan anymore. I think it will be Toprak that will make the final decision at this stage because he has already now gone and won World Superbike. And it is his life. The, the whole point of Kenan is to bring all these Turkish riders through and get them to be winning. That's why he's 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 got all these guys with him everywhere he goes and he trains them up in Turkey. Well, that succeeded with him gigantically um, already with Toprak. The other guys are on the way. Whether they make it or don't, that's fine. But um, I think the trouble is that he has arrived at that point and I think the decision will finally be um, it will be down to top rack if he gets to make a decision at all as was already touched on. I think for me what's going to be interesting is like obviously Keenan as the rider manager as someone that's obviously been very influential in Turkey he was getting a cut from the Turkish government for any Turkish riders coming through so he's now got Dennis Anchu in Moto3 potentially onto a Moto2 bike next year let's say he's got top rack in World Superbikes he's got Chan Anchu in World Supersport the different championships pay different amounts as the bonus or at least that was the case a few years ago so if he's able to push Keenan, or if he's able to push Top Rack over to MotoGP, he gets a big bonus for that. If he's able to put Chan on Chu from a super sport bike onto a super bike, he gets a bonus for that. So Keenan could end up still making good coin just by shuffling his riders around in different places. So I think the Keenan factor is obviously a big factor. Like you look at the whole way through his career for Top Rack, it's been a massive influence on him. It's been a good influence, obviously, as well, because Top Rack's turned into the, the talented rider that everyone thought he was, but now the finished article. And I think that's where it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward for him. But the one thing about it is Yamaha have top rack that can win a world championship, no one else. They've got Fabio Quattararo that can win a world championship, no one else. So they're in a, a pretty dangerous position where do you want to make sure that the one rider that you can see winning a lot of races, winning a world championship in superbikes, that you then push them onto a MotoGP bike where maybe they're able to get great results. But, and definitely, I think, on the basis of this season, Top Rack's going to be the second Yamaha rider because he would get better results than what Morbidelli has right now. He would be doing a better job than what you have from the ORNF team. But then that opens the can of worms of whether well, they're still going to be a Yamaha team next year. And that could be the biggest factor for Top Rack. There may not be enough seats in MotoGP to actually put him into there. The other thing is that people from MotoGP uh, have been saying about the front end that, Obviously, Top Rack's big secret weapon is to be able to break, turn all the magic he does on the front end. Well, the problem people are having in MotoGP now is they can't overtake. If somehow that they suddenly see that, wow, this guy's doing something on the front end that our riders can't, 
probably doubtful given the quality of the riders that they are. But because of his style that no one seems to have anywhere, um, maybe that's the key for them to do the improvement. Where do you get the biggest improvement in MotoGP bikes seems to be the front. Um, you know, everything else is so controlled and so on. Uh, it's where the rider brakes and heavy brakes and stuff. If you've got a rider with simply better feel to take it to further the edge without setting everything wrong, as Top Rack does in Superbike, that's what he's good at, maybe that test's going to be great and they'll be right, okay, we'll take him. But Yamaha, you mentioned exactly the thing there, Yamaha obviously got to look at this strategically. Taking Top Rack there would be, you know, a tactic. Unless he shows how good he is on that. That's why, they, to me, they need to give him two or three day test to see what he can really go once he's got had a night's sleep, think about it next day, try this, try that, two bikes, three bikes. Really see what the guy can do with the front end because they need somebody. Okay, Quartararo's not old, but, you know, if you're all your eggs in one basket, you need to have someone else coming along. So Yamaha's strategy now has to be the future as well as the present. Um, they're winning, but with one. It's going to be interesting as well, Gordo, that obviously Top Rack will be working with the test team, which means he'll be working with Galbacera as his crew chief. Will Phil Marin go with him to the test? I'd imagine he will, because then Toprak has someone he's familiar with, someone that can can help use that feedback. But the other side of that coin is, when we've seen other riders get a test like this, they haven't brought people across with them, and then they're immediately on the back foot. But, Charlie, we saw last year, Garrett Gerloff jumped onto a MotoGP bike. He was within a second and a half, I think it was, of the fast guys right away. Toprak's obviously proven himself to be a better rider than Gerloff. Obviously, Gerloff's super talented just like Top Rack but we've seen that sustained success from Top Rack so he's going to come in he's going to be relatively competitive at this test you'd imagine and then it's going to be up to Yamaha to see what happens but the other side of the coin as well is we talked about Keenan we talked about the fact that Keenan traditionally over the course of the last years has looked after Keenan as much as he's looked after his riders Top Rack and Keenan they don't have loyalty to a brand Keenan won his world championships with Honda, with Kawasaki. Toprak's come through the ranks of Kawasaki. He switched to Yamaha because he was disrespected. You know, if someone else comes in with a better offer, they're not going to be saying, oh, well, you know, Yamaha gave me the bike that was able to win a world championship. They're going to go for the best package available as well. And I think that's an element that doesn't get discussed an awful lot. Because the one thing that I would say about this conversation is for us in the world superbike paddock, there's only a handful of us that talk about the options for top rack whereas in MotoGP they look through a very closed closed door for that so they don't tend to look at a full picture for top rack and I think that's what could be quite interesting going forward it doesn't necessarily have to be a Yamaha MotoGP seat it's a really good point yeah and and the other the other side of the coin as well is for top rack Maybe, well, he's obviously got another year left on his Yamaha contract, Gordo. So the rider market contracts in World SBK are starting to be a little bit of a discussion point now. We've got Jonathan Ray in the last year of his contract at Kawasaki. Bautista's on a single year contract. Van der Mark's on the, on, the, on the doorstep for teams as well. There's a lot of top riders that are going to be available as well. So Top Rack, he's got that bit of security right now, but it's going to be a case of in the next year certainly the next two years, Toprak's going to have to make his decision about what he does. Yeah, if he gets the choice to make a decision. Um, as everybody always says, MotoGP, you've got to be asked to go. You know, you have to prove, not just, there's plenty of people that were capable of going in the past, especially if they went early enough, and just never got asked. They wanted to go and never got a chance to go. Jonathan's had offers, but not the kind that would have, have benefited him 
So he's he's always walked and stayed in the superbike. That's why he did. Fogarty would have wanted to go to MotoGP. Fogarty's big regret when he retired is that he didn't get a chance to go and do a full-on MotoGP season for one reason or another. Um, and MotoGP just didn't fancy Fogarty as much for his image as anything else. They, you know, they just didn't, they, they, he didn't fit. He wasn't the kind of guy that was going to be all sugar mouth, as Kenny Roberts used to say. You know, he's going to say all the right things. He's going to say what he wants. And at that stage in MotoGP, it was kind of frowned on. Everybody had to be very, very corporate. So it's you have to be asked. Um, and if Top Rack goes, he's going to have to do incredibly well in the first year to get the chance to stay. Um, and he might be offered one in one where it's someone saying, well, we'll give you a chance this year, but if it's no good, you're going back. Obviously, any team would have Top Rack, no problem. But... The question I think is for if he does go, Johnny's not young, Alvaro's not young. Which of those guys that we've touched on already, your Gerloffs and so on, your Panda Marks, who are, which of them are taking a step up? Because to me, none of them are. You know, right now, and obviously they've had their problems and everything else, I understand, but no one is seriously challenging that three now. That's a slight concern for me because a lot of those guys maybe should be closer to the top three than they are now. Um, and, and the other manufacturers are are they really competitive is a Honda going to be a 5th and 6th place bike for all time um, maybe the BMW has got something more to find and they've got certainly a very strong rider line off the beginning of the season but who's the next great one inside Superbike World Championship I, I'm not looking at one yet yeah, and I think that's probably the most interesting thing going forward because we've got this season right now, like we had last year, where we've got a lead Kawasaki, lead Yamaha, lead Ducati rider, and they're the ones to keep an eye on all the way through. And then it's a case of who can step up to try and have their good races on any given weekend to be able to fight with them. Right now, we don't really have anyone that's doing that on a consistent basis. You're looking at who's no. coming through in the super sport class. And a lot of the time, it's guys that have had their Grand Prix chance and are being pushed into a super sport bike like Andrea Locatelli and then put onto a factory Yamaha. Lock has come in. He's a top five rider. Is he a rider that you see being able to make the jump to be able to replace Toprak? And that's the big question everyone's going to face. And that's also what we're going to talk about in part two of today's Paddock Pass podcast. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 Glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And just as we spoke before the break, the big question mark is about the top three because once again, in Estoril, we saw... Ray, Razga de Yoglu, Bautista scrapping it out all the way through the weekend. We have three totally different bikes, three very different riders. And Charlie, without making it into the Ray and Razga de Yoglu show again, when you look at these two riders, you, you even asked Johnny after race one in Park Ferme, do you have to change how you approach your racing because you fight with Razga de Yoglu so hard that it means Bautista can come through from three seconds back, two and a half seconds back and be able to win race one. Well, I only asked it because Bautista had said it, that basically he was, you know, a couple of seconds back or he was he was off the pace and it was Jonathan and Top Rank fighting that, that cost him the time. And when Bautista wins by a couple of tenths, that's, you know, one overtake less. And actually, you know, Jonathan could have won it. 
So, but I, I thought Jonathan's answer was quite interesting in that he's sort of, you know, look, at the moment in the championship, we're only three rounds in, he's, at, he's currently 17 points down. So he doesn't feel that there's that need yet. And I think actually we need another round or two. If, if, if Bautista keeps having a steady start and having an amazing pace at the end of the race, because Toprak and Jonathan are knocking chunks out of each other, they might have to think that. He didn't actually rule it out completely. He just said now wasn't the time. Uh, and the other thing that was quite interesting was um, talking to Perry Reber about, you know, it, he did say at the beginning of the season, this is the best Jonathan we've ever had. And actually, when you look at the way, we talked about this, Steve, on Sunday morning, the way that Jonathan has to adapt to fight these two different riders, you know, fighting against top rank is a completely different fight to fighting against <laughs> Bautista. It's, it, you know, sure. And not, not oh, just absolutely. the actual fight on the track and overtaking, the strategy of beating these guys has to be completely different. Jonathan has to go tooth and nail, you know, over the limit entirely to be top rank. Whereas with Bautista, he has to think a little bit more. Bautista, we know, has got great pace at the end of the race. The bikes are, you know, missile. And I just think um, after this weekend, having seen some of the best racing I think I've ever seen, it was actually not just the racing, but Jonathan's mentality and approach. We've always known about him, but more so, more than ever last weekend was just the guy is sometimes unbeatable, even though he's not on the best bike. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with that, Charlie. I also think, and Jonathan said it himself, that they've given him more bite this year. So, yes, he's having to go 100% with top right, but last year we saw him going over 100%. Exactly he that. Just, he had to, he didn't just override the bike, he took it overriding, then overriding, and then eventually crashing, which Jonathan never really does, very, very seldom. And that showed you how hard he was riding. This year, Jonathan's two main things are, I'm not, Bautista's not getting away, like he did in races, he's even when he wins, it's three, four, five seconds, not 15, 20. When he first came in 2019 on that bike, everybody was like, oh my God, that's it. He's transcended the sport. And Johnny won the championship. So this year, Johnny actually feels quite good because he's 17 points behind with one DNF. If Johnny hadn't had that DNF, would he still be leading, would he be leading the World Superbike Championship? So, that you know, it, Johnny's relaxed. He's, he, you know, and he knows he's got more of a bike under him so Johnny can bring more Johnny One of the things I noticed this weekend which I thought was quite interesting having spent my whole life in Park Ferme was that this weekend when Alvaro won the first race I mean Ducati went absolutely crazy <laughs> I don't know whether they were uh, you know I don't know how they were feeling before the race but they went through the roof it was literally amazing and I'm in Park Ferme a lot but this was exceptional and then the following morning, when Jonathan wins that Super Bowl race after Top Rack's mistake into the chicane, Kawasaki went through the roof and it's just, yeah. it seems to have, it's being ratcheted up and up and up. And it's not, you know, we talk about Jonathan and Top Rack and are they getting on and aren't they getting on, blah, blah, blah. The teams, the rivalry between the teams is incredible. And it's never been more apparent than it was in Park Ferme this weekend. It was amazing. It was like being at a football match where people were just so happy because the underdog was winning. I mean, Jonathan shouldn't have won those last two races, but he did by, yeah. you know, not just, I mean, he is mercurial, but the team are incredible as well. You know that the Kawasaki function like no other team in the business. Do you know what I mean? So it was just became, yeah. if you had to, you know, put it in a nutshell, the way that the teams were reacting kind of put it puts it into perspective. Charlie, if you had to make a showreel for the championship just based on that weekend there, how long would it be? With the amount of moves be... and the amount of special uh, moments. I mean, well, I mean, that's the other thing that um, that we've been talking about a lot, right? Is saying that first race. Um, <clears throat> I did try and have a chat with Perry Reber about it, and that is that there's now something that also that I've not really seen quite so much, even including last year, is that. 
the pride that is coming to the fore between Top Rack and Jonathan is incredible. So, you know, even last year, Top Rack would make a move, Jonathan would come back and then make a move. Whereas now, Jonathan won't let Top Rack pass. I mean, Ev, they did five overtakes in the first race and each, every single one of them was nearly a crash, you know, and they're coming off the back of a crash in Assen and the pride, and it's not that I love Top Rack and Jonathan because they're, they're fantastic sportsmen. That's the one thing that Keenan has taught Top Rack is to be an incredible sportsman. So when you, when you get into Park Ferme, they shake hands and they have massive respect and they're both happy because they've had an amazing race, regardless of who's won or lost. On the track, it's different. They literally, they, they just, it's amazing. Even in Jonathan's, you know, all of his career, he's done all this incredible stuff. Now, it's never been more apparent that actually they cannot, know, you, know, the, you know the well-worn phrase, no quarter asked or given, that is now becoming apparent in every single overtake or partial overtake or partial outbreak. It's never been higher. The standard has never been higher. The pressure has never been higher. And I've got to say, I absolutely love it. Every overtake. It's just just amazing. I've never seen such reckless abandon on a racetrack. (laughs) Unlike this, probably the only thing I could compare it to is Sepang's go-kart track, which already has gone out on it. <laughs> I've seen him, and, I've, I've uh, actually seen him, our colleague Ian Wheeler, I've seen him going around Donington, that's reckless abandon. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing about it is, like when you look at how both riders approach it, and I think that's what's, that's what's the interesting thing, for the contrast of how Johnny has to race top rack versus how he has to race Bautista Gordo. We saw a perfect example of it this weekend because in Aragon race one, we saw Bautista ran in a little bit deep into the last corner and Johnny just gassed the bike and going for this gap and I'm going to force Bautista to stand the bike up and I'm going to take this race win. We saw it into turn six, the Parabolica interior uh, in the opening race the weekend. Top rack ran out a little bit wide and Johnny thought, I'm gassing it, I'm going through this gap. And Toprak just came back across him because Toprak just is willing to do that. Johnny hits into the back of him, somehow manages to stay on his bike. But it was the difference between how he has to approach Bautista versus how he has to approach Razgadioglu. Yes, that's riding style, but mostly motorcycle. Um, Jonathan knows he's got nothing on the straight for, for Bautista, so he has to keep him behind. You also notice that Toprak did that um, when he lost that race um, from the eight corner exit and across the start-finish line when he was shaking his head like mad, he was so frustrated because every lap he was putting massive gap into Batista, which he was then able to, because Batista took the risk on a not-perfect setup. His bike was not working well in the corners, and there's a lot of them at Estoril. Um, but he put in a special effort, put extra risk in to make sure he was close enough, and that's why he ended up getting that one. Johnny, when he got Batista, made sure that he couldn't, get back, he blocked him off enough so that he, he, no matter what, he just couldn't get the line and the drive and then the power down the straight working for him and Jonathan had already made his escape. So yes, the, you know, you have to use your bike's advantages. All those bikes have got different characteristics. The Ducati is much more different than the other two. Um, but Johnny, as you say, has to fight two different fronts this year and has to think two different ways. As does top right. It's, it's it's basically the same. He's he knows he's going to battle with Johnny and maybe have to be more race crafty at the end of the race with someone like Batista. Um, and a lot of it's going to go down as we started earlier about tires and things. You know, making the right choice of tire. They've all 
the top three guys are close this year, but everybody else is miles back. Not everybody, not miles back, but there's a big gap between those three and everybody else, which shows you the pace they're putting in. Uh, you know, for all the, the chances they're taking, they're getting to the end of the race and winning the, the take the podiums. You know, uh, so they're they're not riding crazy, but they are riding on the limit and making passes on the limit. All the things we want to see, but you know, it's like top right when he does all those big things. You think he's got to fall off when he does those mad wheel, mad uh, stoppies and stuff. When does he? I mean, it's difficult to remember when it actually happens. Do you know what? That's actually one of the things that I think is going to be one of the deciding factors for Top Rack on whether he'll go to MotoGP or he'll stay in Superbikes. Because we see it all the time in the paddock. Top Rack's just stunt riding in the middle of the paddock. He takes a paddock scooter and he takes it through the back of the Yamaha pit box. He does little turns all around the bike. He's doing wheelies around the bike in the garage. And then he just jumps out the back of the pit box. And he won't be able to do things like that in MotoGP as well. He won't have the time to be able to just have fun. You know, MotoGP is much more driven towards your your time with the media, all these kind of things. Because at the end of the day, for Top Rack, he has to deal with the three of us, the, the Italian media, Evo from Speed Week, and then a few one-event guys. So he's got that relationship built up with all of us that even when he has to do media interviews, he still has fun. Whereas whenever you go to MotoGP and you've got, you know, 10 times the media it suddenly becomes much more of a job for him. So I think there's all those factors that are going to play in as well. But um, what, I, what I was going to say though as well, Gordo, we saw in race one and race two, the difference between how Toprak and Johnny have to approach it when they're up against Bautista. We saw at the end of race one, Toprak had had a couple of wheelies coming out of the last corner. The clear sign he was pushing as hard as he could through that last corner to open up as much of a gap as he could. We also saw Johnny take the lead and then I have no idea how he did in high sides of the moon yeah. coming through the parabolica. But yeah. it showed how early he had to get in the gas, just like Top Rack in race one. And we could easily have had it where Bautista had picked up both race wins on a last corner draft to the straight kind of thing. But we yeah. saw both of those riders, just how much they want it. And Johnny in particular on that last lap. And I think um, ultimately Johnny's also just got a lot more experience in Top Rack. We forget Top Rack's only been a top rider for a couple of years. Um, Johnny's been been winning races in World Superbikes since he got there. Um, you know what? Two thousand nine was his first season, full season. You know he's been there a long time. Um, Top Rack's still learning those things. The ability to ride a motorcycle is untouchable, but in a race, you'd still put money on Johnny and Top Rack. All things being equal, to me, not you know at the end of a race. I mean. Like the same you would with Johnny or anybody else. He did it to Chaz Davis, he's did it to Tom Sykes, he's did it to all those riders. Johnny's racecraft is, is unmatched in World Superbike terms. Absolutely. Especially when the chips are down. Most other riders would have, in that uh, huge slide he had, would have somehow backed off or thought, oh, here we go. Johnny said, I just rode the slide, rode the slide, rode the slide. Just kept it open and said, okay, well, it's happened, it's fine. And that actually might have helped him because obviously when you slide out, you cut the corner. So it might even have helped him when the tyre hooked up again. Who knows? Um, but it certainly got your attention. Um, and yeah, to, to keep your cool after something like that happens, it, it sums up Johnny. That's why he's so good. I think for me, one of the big advantages that Johnny has is his riding style. It's such a unique style. He sits in the middle of the bike, which means anytime something like this happens, he's actually got a lot of weight that he can move around. And that's why, like, you look at all those mega saves he had last year. We're going to Mizano next. He had that massive crash through the turn one, two complex that wasn't a crash. 
a lot like what we saw on on Sunday morning as well, Charlie, with Toprak. You know, these guys, they can adapt really well. Johnny's got that weight he can move around a lot more. Toprak's just an acrobat on a motorbike. Uh, I think one of the, um, the graphic demonstrations of Jonathan for his mentality, and I think that's where he probably, for me, if he's got an advantage, that's where his advantage is, which is kind of, you know, as Gordo says, for a guy with so much experience, he's probably better and hungrier and, you know, more ruthless than ever. Than ever. But it was in the Supol race where, you know, three laps from the end of the race, Jonathan is X amount of time behind Top Rack. And actually, you know, it was it was the case of, you know, Top Rack's got this, you know, let's take the 20 points. But Jonathan doesn't do that. He's still at 101% up into that final chicane. You know, the race is almost, the race is over then. Jonathan's lost, Top Rack's won, but Jonathan doesn't see it like that. So he is still at maximum even into that last chicane. So when Top Rack does make that mistake, Jonathan is on him. If he had a railed off, I think if you took a hundred riders, most 99 of them would have been a little bit further back than Jonathan actually was because they just would have done because they, that's the mentality. Jonathan does not know when he's beaten and he does not give up. And that to me is what gives him not maybe not an advantage, but that's what keeps him, you know, winning these races that he shouldn't have won. He's won two races this weekend that he clearly should not have won, and he's won it on attitude. I think. I would love to see Johnny somehow at the end of his when he's still as good as he is now get the chance to ride all the other bikes. We saw what he did in a Honda that almost nobody could do anything with, and he won loads of races. I think fifteen races he won on that bike. Um, he joined the Kawasaki just at the right time, um, and they were already winning. And he just ran away with it. We showed his quality. I'd love to see him getting a chance on a Ducati, and I'd love to see him getting a chance on a Yamaha. He, not necessarily for a season, just to see what he could do with it, because he'll find the limits of it wherever they are. And maybe Johnny would be able to do more than maybe he'll get a chance to do more on those bikes than the other guys would. Moving over to those bikes, top rack's talent. If he can ride the Ducati the way he does the Yamaha, then he might be able to win races on that. But I don't think so. No one in Ducati is riding like that. And, it, you know, everybody's got a different style, but they're all use the power, try and be stable. But when, like, for example, Xavier Forrest jumped on the bike this weekend and World Suit Bike Trim, and the first thing he said was, I would like more stability under braking. So there's obviously an issue there. Um, so, but I think Johnny might find a way to overcome that more than any of the other two. And I, I might be wrong, but I would love, and the reason to bring it up is I'd just love to see it. I think everybody would love to see Johnny riding someone else. Like, uh, Wayne Rainey stayed on Yamaha or, or, or Doon stayed on Honda. Everybody was desperate for Doon to ride a Yamaha just to see if he could be as awesome as he was and he probably would have been. The one thing I would say is Johnny actually came quite close to leaving Kawasaki before his last contract and it was BMW that was actually the closest one firm it seemed in the paddock. That was the big rumour at the time. So he is willing to jump away because he wants to challenge himself. He wants to win. He wants to have a new challenge as much as anything else but I do find it really interesting that with Johnny in particular he is one of those few riders you could throw him onto any of those bikes and he's going to go really well and I think that probably the most interesting thing for me is when you look at all the riders he's had as his teammates all of them have said there's just certain things that he does really well and then there's other things that you know he just disregards you know Johnny Johnny is so talented that he could jump onto any of those bikes but in five laps ten laps be really competitive. And the reason for that is I don't think Johnny actually knows what's happening on a bike half the time because he's so adaptable to it. He's a lot like Troy Bayless and that means that he can go on 
He will just figure a way to make the bike fast. He comes back, he'll tell Power Reba the feedback, and then it's up to Reba to make the bike better. If the bike's better, it's faster. If the bike's slower, it's not better. But just to play devil's advocate with you a bit there, Steve, I think you're, I, I sort of do agree with you, but I think you also have to take into account the team and Power Reba. Because, I mean, if you look at, if you take BMW for an example, you take Scott Redding, you know, who won a race at Estoril last year, he's now gone on to BMW, which is, how shall I put this? How do we? How do you sum up the BMW in a couple of words? It's still, not, in it's, still in its development cycle, Steve. Yeah, it's still in the same development cycle. It's been in for what, fifteen years or whatever. <laughs> it's not. I mean, let's be honest. Right? The, the, the bike's not performing, right? Scott Redding was pulling his hair out in Aragon. They've been and done a test, okay, and he's and he's shuffling slowly up, the, you know, up the up the you know up the, up the league or up the front of the grid here, yeah, where 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 we would like him to be, but actually. Although, Jonathan, I think you're absolutely right that you could put him on any bike. You have to take into account the team that goes with that. If you take Jonathan and stick him in BMW yeah. next week, he ain't going nowhere. Because the bike or the team or whatever it is, he doesn't have. And actually, you know, as good as Jonathan is, I think you ha- also have to give credit to. And, the, you know, it's the same with Top Rack, actually, is that Top Rack is a brilliant rider. But I tell you, even though they had some troubles last year, that it's the team also that have found, I think if you spoke to Paul Denning, he would say yes. over the last two to three years, the team has really gelled. That is a really nice team, yeah. right? The guys, there's a really good chemistry between the guys. The team is performing really well. And that is a really important part of Top Rack's morale, you know, him and Phil Maron's relationship, but also all the people around him. That's really, really important. So although, you know, for me, if, if, if Jonathan's going to jump to any manufacturer, I think he'll go to Ducati personally. Um, because he's he's made reference to that, you know, albeit a long, long time ago. We all sort of think that he might leave Kawasaki, but I don't think it's a case of chucking him on anything and letting him go fast. I think you also need your Reavers and your Gimroders and your other people that, that they're also very important in that mechanism. The team is uh, the most important thing in motorsport. As a very wise man who's been around the block a million times told me, and it's it's a truism. The best rider can't win if the team and the bike and everything else aren't right around him. Look at Johnny. He's ta- even Johnny's talent only got him fifteen wins or and on the Honda, um, and no one else did. You need the, the team, and there's nothing wrong with the ten car team, but the, the machinery, everyone else just wasn't quite right. You need all those elements. And the team is an essential part of that. Look at how stable that Kawasaki team's been for years. What Yamaha have created inside is a lot of changes over the years. But that team, when you walk in that pit garage now, you look at the faces, it's mostly the same faces. Maybe once one retires, one one moved in. But they've they they've created a team that those the older team members inside that team said, actually, this is as good as any team I've ever been in. Anywhere else. And a lot of them have raced other places, you know? So this is all good, but again, I'm going to play devil's advocate because that doesn't apply to the other half of the garage in Kawasaki. Because you've had, you know, a number of very highly rated riders going in there who haven't performed. So what's the problem there? Well, uh, can I can I just jump in, Gordo? Because sure. I think it just kind of comes back to again back to Johnny. Because if Johnny was to move to BMW or Honda they would throw all the resources that they have to make him happy and that means hiring crew chief electronics engineer data engineer whoever he wants they would bring in whoever he asks for and that would be in all likelihood one of the big conditions for Jonathan we talked about Top Rack having his conditions to go to Yamaha MotoGP don't think for a second that Johnny wouldn't have his his conditions for where he moves to as well so he would look for person XYZ I think when you look at 
I think Alex is a good example that you bring up there, Charlie, on the other side of the pit box from Kawasaki because the relationship between a crew chief and a rider is so critical. And then how that crew chief interacts with everyone else becomes critical as well. And I think you could have a situation there where Marcel's clearly an excellent engineer, Marcel Dwinker. He's won a world championship with Tom Sykes, but maybe he's not who the rider needs right now. And I think that's one of the big things is that you look at Toprak. Toprak, before he was working with Phil Maron, was a super talented rider. But no one told him, you need to buckle down. You need to get fit. You're wasting your talent because you're going to win some races, but you're never going to be a world champion unless you're as fit as you can be and you're working as hard as as possible. And what happened at the second round where Phil was working with Toprak, Keenan came in and Toprak got distracted. And Phil said, no, hang on a second, lads. We're in a world championship here. Keenan, you've got your play, your part to play and you're massively important to Top Rack. But the first person he talks to about the bike should be his crew chief and his team, not his manager. So you need to have it where the, the right person is in charge of the rider and that they're strong enough to be able to say, this is what we need. And you also need where the rider is strong enough to say, this is what I need. Yeah. Um, I, to go back to Charlie's point, um, the other side of the garage, ultimately everybody on the other side of the garage has been racing the GOAT since the GOAT turned up. Tom Sykes won a world championship and nearly won three. I mean, he was so close in two years around his world championship. Um, so, and that, that the, the, the two sides of the garage thing in Kawasaki is, is a, an interesting dynamic because that's what it is. But behind the scenes, like every other team, they all go into technical debriefs and share information. So it's set up, etc. Um, yes, there, there, there's, there's been a, an issue with one side of the garage doing all the winning in the last few years um, and not enough from the other side. And they'd be the first guys that, that want to change that situation. You'd have to be in there with them all the time. But they they are two completely different crew chiefs, completely Perry and Marcel, and they've got two different ways of doing it. One goes in almost all, exclusively from the engineering side and then works with the rider in the garage. And one is looking at it always from the point of view of the rider Um to, to translate the feel of the rider into it. It would be incredibly interesting to see them swap, those two guys swap teams for a couple of weekends, the same as it would be if Tom swapped teams for a weekend or Leon Haslam or anybody else. Um, we've talked about it already, Jonathan, what would they do in a Ducati? Jonathan, what would they do in a Yamaha? Um, but the, the final point on that is that a lot of people will stay where they are because they've also got, when you've got a stable team, they have got a kind of loyalty and a career expectation with a manufacturer. Perry's been with Kawasaki as a rider, as a as a test rider in Japan, everything. Perry leaving Kawasaki would, would is is more of a deal than Jonathan leaving Kawasaki. You know, we're talking hypothetical here. But it's much more of a deal. Marcel's been with Kawasaki and Hayate before that for forever. So there's there are when you're winning it's a team effort from both sides, all the background people in Japan but when you've got the goat on the other side of the garage, maybe everything else is moot. Maybe everything else just doesn't matter. What know? I'd say is quite interesting as well is obviously for Suzuka, it's Parariba running the show. And that means that you're going to have Ray, Lowe's and another rider. You know, it's Haslam that's doing all the test riding at the minute as well. So maybe those three riders, let's say, as the three riders for it's going to be interesting to see how the dynamics work between Ray and Lowe's in that situation as well because like you said Gordon the big thing with Kawasaki the biggest rivalry in the paddock has always seemed to be 
Reba versus Dwinker as much as as anything for riders. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. The one thing I would say as well is that like for riders, they all need very individual things. And that's where Reba seems excellent at that because he doesn't seem to take a massive engineering oversight on things. He leaves the electronics guys, the suspension guys, the tire guys, the mechanics. He's there to be their manager and he's there to make the rider feel 10 foot tall. You look at Johnny all the time. He feels so confident out there that he's got the belief of that whole crew around him. And that's the that's the big thing. And that's the big secret of his success as much as anything else. I just, I just wonder what would have happened now if uh, Top Racket stayed at Kawasaki. What sort of podcast yeah. would we be talking about now? Yeah, yeah, that's the, that, that's an interesting point you bring up there, Charlie, is what if the Suzuki incident, etc., hadn't happened and they had promoted him? I think they thought he was just needed another year. So let's keep up somewhere else for another year. And and obviously the, the, the Turkish uh, delegation said, no, I'm ready now. I want to go now. And when it was obvious that it wasn't going to happen, they said, okay, I'm off. See you later. Um, I'd love to see Top Rack and Johnny in the same team. Well, oh, my on, goodness it, gracious it, me. It'd be oh, Top Rack and Doinker as opposed to Top Rack. I mean, uh, you can't... I, I'm, I'm with Steve, right? You can't underestimate what Phil Marin gives to Top Rack. They're a match. Yeah. You know, they're a duo. They're a yeah. pair made in heaven, as is Perry and Jonathan. Marcel, I think, is like exactly like you said. He's a, he's a, he's an engineer who looks after the you know the riders in the garage. But you know, we've been through Haslam and Sykes and now Lowe's, and actually, it's just what when you look at Kawasaki, I, I'm I'm sure that they would like to lift that side of the team. And you kind of have to look at what the problem is on that side of the garage. And I don't think you could discount the quality of Alex Lowe's, you know, Haslam. Like you said, um, Tom Sykes only won three titles, not just one. You'd have to look at where the problem is in that garage. And for me, it's fairly logical where you would see that problem. But again, just like you said with Perry Reba, I can't ever see Perry Reba leaving Kawasaki. At the same way, I can't see Kawasaki ever getting rid of Doinker, personally, to be brutal. Yeah, and I think that's that's the big thing there, the dynamics within the team. And it's also going to be one of the things we talk about in the last 10 minutes of the pod, where we look at the battle behind the top three and all the riders that are fighting it out just to try and get the chance to stand on a podium. There are other riders in this championship? <laughs> There's one or two. We'll talk about them after the break, Char. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And just to finish off today's show on Estoril, it is a very general look that we're taking on World SBK right now for this week's show. And it's because we got Charlie on the show. So it's where we can get a good insight into some of the things that me and Gordo don't get to see up and down the paddock. And Charlie, I want to come to you straight away because you've obviously dealt with Leon Camier a lot as a rider, now as a team manager. Honda have made a big step forward this year. But what's been really interesting is two rookies have come in Javi Vierge and Iker Lekwona, 
and Honda have made a step forward. And part of that is obviously enough with Bautista and Haslam last year. They reached the ceiling and that's nothing against Bautista. He's out there leading the world championship now. He's a great rider. Haslam's a, a British superbike champion that played a big role in developing the bike last year. But this year, it looks like they've got two young riders that have really been able to elevate their game. We've seen Lacoona on the podium. We've seen both Hondas inside the top five. I think Lacoona was top six in all three races at the weekend. Well, for me, it's, I, I wish I knew more about it, but obviously Honda are probably the most closed team in the paddock. Do you know what I mean? You can't even really walk into their garage. But for me, um, I'd be really keen to know, I mean, Leon would never tell you until, until he's retired, but I, I'd like to know whose decision it was to say, you know what, this development rider stuff ain't working for us anymore. You know, your Haslam's and your Bautista's and stuff, it's not happening. And I wonder whether, whether there's a bit of irony that Leon Camier, who is a developer, you know, not necessarily by choice, but who has become an incredibly good development rider, has just turned around and said, development riders ain't what you need anymore. It's young, hungry riders. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. I think there's, there's some irony in that. And actually, whoever made that decision, I mean, whoever made the decision to bring Leon Camier in as a team manager was a gamble and, and has turned out to be a fantastic decision. And now whoever made the decision to bring on two young riders, two young riders who've never ridden the Superbike before, is starting to look like a really inspired decision. And I, I would like to think that that comes mainly from Leon. I, I agree with you, Charlie. I think, uh, I think they've performed better than we thought they would do. Uh, the one caveat I would put in, devil's advocate, if you like, Charlie. I'm playing devil's advocate now. Is maybe that maybe the Honda, don't you get used to that, Gordo? We're looking yeah, for insight I, from you. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> um, but seriously, my one thought, and it's not my opinion; it's just a thought. It's something you have to take into consideration. Is that maybe that Honda is a top six bike, and that's it? Maybe the fundamentals of it are it's got too much engine for the chassis. For it's very conventional, or there's lots of incredible GP style stuff inside it, but it's ultimately a fireblade on the road. Um, I mean, you get to quite that level, it's not performing. It's a great bike, it wins lots of other race championships and so on, other races. So, therefore, it doesn't really matter whether you've got a young, hungry rider on it or an experienced old head. That is the limit. All, all that Bautista ever said was when you get to a point, you've got no feel. And you and you and you and he ended up falling off or getting on the podium. Um, it's remarkable what they've done so far. I'm all for the change. The only way we'll know the answer to the question, I think, is if they kept one of those development riders and brought in one of the young hungry guys, and then we would see if it was an improvement, whether the results were going to be the same all the time. But I think Vieki from Moto Two is actually more impressive than Lecona because it's Moto Two. It's not Superbike. It's not MotoGP. You know, he, he's got less experience um, on, on a big bike and both of them are doing well. So that is, is is great. And Leon knows what he's doing. Camier knows what he's doing. You know, he's seen all sides of it. The the race management thing was a new thing for him last year. This year, he's kind of got, he understands the gig and says, okay, well, we need to do that. So I agree. It's, a, it's, it's all been very positive, except for the two riders, or the one rider who didn't get to come back again. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I, I completely take on board what you say about maybe that bike doesn't have what it needs to be in the top three, for example, consistently. Yeah. Um, and I would also apply that. I think the BMW might be the same. I think they might be, to say that, I'm not going to say they're flogging a dead horse, but all of the information I hear from riders, be it in World Superbikes or British Superbikes, say the same thing. Is that the bike's odd. It's a weird road bike. I mean, it is what it is. You, you can only... Um, 
you can only pee with you can only um, I'm not going to say that but you can only <laughs> deal you can only you can only deal with the tools that you've got right you can only work with what you've got and actually there's no Better if you were thinking about a specific tool you know there, Charlie, you know as well say, yeah a specific tool <laughs> um, but you get what I'm saying is that, that actually you know I've spoken to Loris Baz I've spoken to usually Lavity a lot you know I've spoken to Scott Redding and, and they're all kind of saying the same thing and that is that the bike's odd, it's not, you know, a Kawasaki, it's not a Yamaha, it's not a Ducati, it doesn't do things that you expect it to do. And that, also I've asked around the BSB paddock, I've asked the riders there, and they're saying the same things, is that the bike's just a bit weird. And that's okay, it's a fantastic road bike, but it might not have what it needs to become a fantastic race bike. I mean, I, that, that's, I totally agree with you on that, Gordo. And that might also be the case for the Fireblade. But I think it's also one of those things that Honda were clearly given some dispensations by the FIM this year to be able to change their bike. That's helped improve the package, make it a little bit more adaptable for the riders because there, there were pretty clear chassis imbalances for the first two years. And it was on a knife edge, but it could be really fast. Now you've got two riders that can really bring it to that level. And I, I just we've only got a couple of minutes left on the show, but we saw in Assen, Gordo, that the battle for the two spots on the podium behind Bautista. Once Razgadioglu and Ray were out of the race, we saw just how tight that battle was. We saw in Estoril that was the case once again. We've got great racing all the way down the field, but it just so happens that we've probably got the best racing you'll ever see for the top three. So we don't get to see how good some of those other riders are. And there's a lot of depth and a lot of talent in World SBK now. There is. Um, as I say, we've got a very definite big three. Um, that's the way it is. Um, but behind whether it's riders that have been around for a little while or whether it's riders coming in, when you go through that points table right now, most of those guys are actually relatively new world superbike riders, which is good. The trouble is that none of them are showing the the the, the minerals to basically go... Put that one there for Charlie. Um, <laughs> to, to, to go further up. Um, and really challenge those three guys. You know, someone has to start growing and learning and making a breakthrough. Or we will be just those three guys, which is enough for the fans, enough for the championship, enough for everyone else, but it's not enough for the future. Yeah. I think what was interesting on Sunday in race two, we saw Alex Lowe's could go with them until the last quarter of the race. And what happened to Lowe's was basically what happened to Ray in race one. He went into turn one, tried to break, and it just came straight back to the bars for him. So he ended up just having to settle for fourth place by the end of the race. But Gordo, you're mentioning about riders with, do they have the right minerals? We know that Garrett Gurloff has all the talent in the world. This weekend was just another one of those weekends where we saw that just that run of luck that he just doesn't have continued. And he had a massive high side in FP3 on Saturday morning, ruled out of the weekend. It's been his best track for the last two years. He just needs that bit of luck. He needs one podium and then suddenly he could be Garrett Gurloff again. But he's also another one of those riders, Charlie, that's kind of in that wrong situation right now. And he might be someone that needs a, a total fresh start. And maybe he could be one of those riders those manufacturers look at because talent's not a question for him. It's almost just he just needs just that right environment or that right opportunity. Well, this goes back to what we were saying about Marcel Doinka and the way that he is a crew chief because we know that Garrett last year was incredibly fast and then we know he went through um, uh, 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 effectively what was a racing trauma with three really nasty incidents and we know that Yamaha and his management were were not, it wasn't very well managed. He was crushed. He was, you know, told off and th there was a lot of stuff going on in the background and he was getting probably not, instead of being, 
you know, nurtured and looked after and trying to get his confidence back. He's been, um, I don't know what the word is, but he's kind of been hung out to dry a little bit for me last year. And he wasn't treated, I don't think that he was not necessarily treated well by Yamaha, but I don't think he was spoken to particularly well. And he certainly had his, you know, they weren't helping him out. He was, you know, we saw him at the end of last year, the guy looked flipping suicidal. There's no doubt about it. The guy had absolutely lost it, right? And I'm not, I, I know that's a strong statement, but he was, I spoke to him many times and he was like, like a shadow of of his former self. Yeah, I mean, I understand that, and I, I kind of agree, but the problem was that before that, it was, and there'd been quite a few incidents with Garrett on track, every time this was brought up, it was like 100% defence, I've not done anything wrong, I've not done anything wrong, I've not done anything wrong, and I think it was in the minority of one there, when everybody was going, well, okay, mate, you, you just made a mistake, but it's the same mistake you made two weeks ago, and the same mistake you made two weeks before that, so it was like denial, 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 and then all of a sudden realisation, oh no, when everybody suddenly jumped on him, he thought, oh no, it is me, so his confidence was crushed. But he was maybe showing too much confidence and all riders need arrogance and it's good. It's part of what makes them interesting human beings. But I think he just suddenly hit a wall of, oh my God, it was me. You know, yeah, it's my fault. And then there's been a few, as you say, very unlucky things happening with him, the crew chief change and everything else. He was on the rise, 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 rise. And then all of a sudden it went, it plummeted. Any rider would find that difficult to come back from. Garrett needs to... uh, somehow find a, his happy place again because he's a very good rider. He's American. We need a good American rider. Um, and, and a nice fella. He's, we need variety. And he's still young enough, certainly in superbike terms, to go and have a great career. So, but he needs to be given that chance again. He needs to um, move on somehow. Easy said, sitting here. But I think everybody wants Garrett to succeed even just because of the country he comes from and his huge history and Superbike World Championship. And if Top Rack goes, Yamaha need a guy. It could very well be him if he can get all those, put the races together. It could be him, even now. It's always a lot easier for the championship. It's a lot easier for everyone when there's a fast American. It's a lot easier to make some money. And uh, that's no difference for us on the Paddock Pass podcast. So if you're in America and you want to get up to date on all the latest news from the MotoGP paddock over the course of a race weekend, check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast. We've got a lot of different tiers now and we've got lots of different shows that go out on each of those tiers. So check that out and uh, you'll be able to get the insights from David, Neil, Adam, and a few days a weekend myself over the course of a Grand Prix weekend and they get you up to speed fully on everything that's happening over that. That'll be this weekend for the Mugello Grand Prix as well. So uh, make sure you're able to check that out. As it is, I could sit here, I could talk to you guys for another hour, but uh, we've got to wrap the show up. We've got a few weeks off now for Superbike Duty or World Superbike Duty. I'm straight away out to the TT for watching some other types of superbikes out there. So we're going to have some superbike shows as well. Tony Goldsmith's going to be back in the Paddock Pass podcast. So keep your eyes peeled for that as well. But big thanks to Gordo and Charity for joining us. And thanks to everyone for listening to this show and to Fly Racing for supporting us. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. We have too many sponsors, Charlie. That's the problem. <laughs> but, but Gordo, you have to give them the airtime, you know? Mate, that's fine. Charlie, keep your clothes that's, on, for Christ's sake. That's, a, that's how we get the viewers in. Charlie, that's not going to get lost, <laughs> is it?
I'm doing a Jack Burnacle standing here in my pants. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bizarre, it's not that hot. Right, mate. All right, we're all ready.